Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom podcast. My name is Saint, I'm glad you're here to join me again today. Uh, quarantine's being lifted all around the country, slowly but surely. Uh, if it hasn't been for you, I'm sure it's coming soon. And I know you're excited to run out there and get all the things you used to do done. Uh, but just remember to keep in mind uh, personal safety, uh, other people's safety, and just kind of do everything you can do to maintain that social distance. But enough for me about preaching. My name, again, is Saint, and this is a new episode of the Feel Your Fandom podcast. Uh, we are talking today with someone who runs one of the official Roddenberry podcasts called Mission Log. Uh, if you've heard of Star Trek, he's got your number. He knows everything he's talking about. And I know he's going to say that he doesn't, but I'm pretty sure he does. He can out-trek most people, and uh, it's it's a wonderful pleasure to talk to Mr. John Champion. John, how are you doing today? Uh, what an intro. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and yes, I, I, will, uh, I will absolutely fight you on uh, saying that I know a lot about Star Trek. <laughs> well, no, I take that back. I know a lot about Star Trek. I can't take on everybody with Star Trek. No. (laughs) There are definitely limits. Um, I was talking to my co-host Norman the other day about this idea, uh, sort of like um, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the more you know about something, you realize how little you know about (laughs) that thing. Because then you know the things you don't know. A little bit of knowledge gives you false confidence. A lot of knowledge and something you just think, oh, man, there's no way to learn at all. Yeah, I get that. And uh, I'm, I'm like that with a lot of my other fandoms, too. I mean, I'm, I'm really super high into uh, Star Wars, for instance. And uh, ever since, uh, like, for instance, when they dropped all the Expanded Universe stuff in Star Wars, uh, I went right. from having this miles high knowledge base of things that are like, oh, yeah, well, this was in this book and this was in this book and... And all of a sudden, none of that was canon anymore. And it's like, I I like Empire Strikes Back. So it kind of of neutered my my knowledge there. So uh, I'm learning again, just like everybody else. So it's kind of interesting. But uh, Well, I I think our fandom knowledge is sort of get stuck down different tracks. and, And it also has to do with how and when you learned the things that you learned in your fandom. So doing Mission Log... You know, I grew up with the original series. I grew up with Next Generation. All of that information was trickling in over time. Mm-hmm. And it was stuff that I had to read in Starlog magazine or I picked up by talking to other fans at conventions when I was much younger. Now that I'm into DS9 and soon to be into Voyager and, and all the other series, um, I feel like going at a breakneck pace of week to week to week and, and just sort of cramming for trivia, cramming for the discussion that week, it's a lot easier for that to slip out of your mind as well. Right, which explains so, my entire scholastic career, so. Yeah, <laughs> you and me both, man. <laughs> so now yeah. you, you have, uh, for those of you who don't know, maybe, uh, Mission Log is a, uh, like I said, a Roddenberry podcast where what they do is they go episodically through each of the series, one at a time, and talk about the minutia of the episode, they give you a breakdown of the episode, they talk trivia, they talk um, at the later end of the podcast, they give their opinions on it. And um, you guys, you started off with uh, the original series, correct? 
Right. Yeah. Well, we started with the cage. Okay. So as the you should. Unsold pilot. As you yeah, should. The unsold pilot. Then went through the original series. We've been going in series order, and that was important to distinguish because we felt like, all right, telling the entire story of a cast or a crew, as it were, for a starship is how we want to approach it as opposed to doing some sort of strict chronological timeline. Like, oh, well, here's the part where DS9 and uh, TNG overlap, or here's the part where DS9 and Voyager overlap, or... It would get confusing really quick. Yeah, yeah, where Enterprise takes place before the original series, so we'd have to start... We, We didn't want to do that. We just said, okay, look, roughly in production order... This is the entirety of this crew story. So let's do that. Let, let's do that arc. Then we'll come back and do the next series and then the next series and the next series. Now, did you do uh, the animated series as well? Oh, we did, yeah. So we, we told all of the original series cast. Um, so TOS and then the animated series and then all of their movies. Mm-hmm. So one through six before we got into next gen. And... Um, my only regret with the animated series is that we thought, okay, these are 22-minute episodes. How much depth can there be? So we did two episodes per podcast. Big mistake. <laughs> uh, we really should have done one animated episode per podcast because they crammed there a, is lot. a lot. They crammed a yeah. lot into that. There is a lot there, and it's something to be said about the efficiency of storytelling when you're told, okay, you can only tell this story in 22 minutes. Every line counts. And because it's animation, there's not a lot of room to just sort of play. You, you have to create exactly what you write. And um, it, it, it's fantastic. It, it's a smart show that sadly was under the radar for a lot of fans then and now. No, I agree. And and what a lot of people maybe uh, don't understand as well is just how many of the original cast came back to reprise their roles for this animated production, which is a yeah. rarity in this day and age. Even now when there's adaptations to animation, you don't often get the the main stars coming and doing what they do. Right. Yeah, I mean, they were lucky that uh, a lot of them, frankly, needed the work or if, I mean, that that sounds a little bit crass, they had the opportunity to do the work. You know, you had people who were split up working on a project here or there. I think Shatner was doing a lot of theater at the time, so he was busy, but it was relatively easy to just put a tape recorder and a mic in front of him and say, here, do these, you know, three scripts <laughs> that are 20 minutes a piece, and then you're done, you know? Yeah, and a paycheck's a paycheck at that point, so. Right, absolutely. Well, what we like to do, typically speaking, at the uh, front of the podcast is I like to kind of uh, throw it out to my guests and, and ask them, uh, what is it yet you are a fan of? What is it that makes you passionate? What is it that sparks that interest in you uh, and it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, anything star trek related i know we're focusing on star <laughs> trek given uh, uh your 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 job and what you do but yeah. uh what are your fandoms what are you into well i mean star trek is obviously a big part of it and i grew up as a star trek fan from uh, Honestly, it's a little weird. I remember being a Star Trek fan before I even really remember 
watching Star Trek. I'm the same which, way. I'm the same yeah, way. Right? Right? So it's one of those things where it's just sort of it's around you. You know that you're into it. You know that it's cool. But I, I can't put a finger on what episodes I was watching when I was <laughs> five or six. I I don't know. Uh, but but I had the toys. And I just I remember knowing who the characters were. So it was just always there. And, and being that age... Um, watching those shows and and being into science fiction everything that followed along with it star wars and space 1999 and battlestar galactica and buck rogers it, those were all things that i felt passionately about and james bond then and to this day you know that's science fiction but with a spy lead character as opposed <laughs> to a heroic captain lead character i've never thought about um, that as science fiction but you're absolutely correct Oh, they're, they're science fiction. Yeah, they're absolutely. You know, I, I going back to the original books, uh, most of them are pretty straightforward spy stories, but then they really take a turn into sci-fi, and the movies quite embrace that, you know. Um, uh, gosh, and then outside of that, outside of just sort of science fiction and movie fandom, because Star Trek has become a part of my life now, it... it it really is. It, it is the job, but I also love it. I'm also still a fan. Um, my my fandoms and my passions run to so many places. Um, I am a huge food fanatic. I will arrange vacations around how many meals I get to eat and where. <laughs> um, that is no lie. I'm a foodie <laughs> no as well, man. I'm right there with you. Yeah, good, good. I, I mean, this was, I, I went, gosh, about a year ago, I was with my parents in London, and they had arranged this, uh, it was their 50th anniversary, and, and they had really put together this great trip, and it was London, and doing a river cruise in Paris, and all this terrific stuff, and I was like, yes, you figure out everything you want to do, I will be there gladly, I can't wait to go. I think my mom asked, well, what do you want to do? Is there anything you want me to add to the list? One thing, we go to Rules Restaurant in London, the oldest family-owned, still operational restaurant in nice. London. That's top of my list. As long as we do that, I'm happy. And how was it? Uh, it was fabulous. <laughs> oh, I, I, I still have dreams about the dessert that I had there, the, the, the Queen's Pudding, which was uh <laughs> incredible it's so good um i am passionate there are many things historically that i'm i'm passionate about that i'm a fan of ocean liners um I, i'd say probably three or four times a year when it's open which is not right now uh but the queen mary is 40 minutes from me in la and i'll go stay for a long weekend and I, i've developed this sort of group of fan friends who do the same thing it's like having my star trek family only we geek out about ocean liners uh whether it's the queen mary or the queen elizabeth or the united states or the normandy or what have you that that's our thing and to the same degree that people are star trek fans we we collect memorabilia we talk about what ifs we're looking for the weird details that everybody else overlooks many of us have risked getting caught opening doors that go to places we should not have gone. <laughs> you know? um, I get that. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and music, I mean, I, 
I, th that's such a broad and general category. I grew up with classic rock, but the last few years I've really taken a turn into jazz and th that's become a, a thing for me as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if something grabs my interest, I, it's a blessing and a curse that we live in the day and age of the internet where you can just spend day after day doing that deep dive and that that's the way i've always treated it it inch wide and a mile deep yeah that, that's where that's where my interests go if i'm into something i want to know everything about it i want to know how it works what makes it tick where did it come from what what are the what are the good and the bad the pros and the cons around this thing you know that that's something interesting with mission log is that I try to avoid reading reviews and commentary before I go on air mm -hmm. giving a review or commentary. But after the fact, I love seeing what other people say because I, I want to know if somebody got a completely different take on it than I did. Yeah, I've actually sat down and, and read some reviews after the fact of what be a movie or a, a book that I'm reading. And, mm -hmm. and you get mm -hmm. that differing point of view and it just makes you kind of stop in your tracks sometimes and go wait a minute i didn't think of that yeah and it makes you yeah. refocus the conversation and think about it in an entirely different way and absolutely it's exciting yeah. and it might even i i found that uh, like i love some quote-unquote bad films mm -hmm. you know i i will i will go to the mat defending Flash Gordon from 1980. Oh, now, fortunately, it's just in something 40 about years, it. It's just something about it. Yeah. See, now, it, it, 40 years later, it has a cult following. We're getting a 4K restored version coming out on Blu-ray later this year. But the conventional wisdom is that that is a terrible movie. <laughs> now, now, I never thought it was. I thought it was perfect in in its own way. But I was always interested in reading reviews and finding out what other people thought of this movie. And that's just one example among many. Because I wanted to know, well, are these criticisms that either I'm missing or they're criticisms that I actually think are are positive aspects of that film or, or book or TV show or album or, or whatever? I, I, I want to know. It, it helps me to inform my own opinion of something, to know if I'm just completely <laughs> missing it <laughs> or or it's something that i interpret in a different way right and then i had this wonderful conversation uh, very recently with uh, uh, a comic book writer who's a, also a journalist and does a lot of work like that uh, his name is mark ronner and mark mm -hmm. did a series of comics based on the twilight zone the original series of the twilight zone oh fabulous. and yeah so to prepare for that, same same as preparing for this podcast, I sat and I watched a bunch of Twilight Zone. I read all of his work and I did all of that. And I've never had so much fun deep diving into something just to talk about it for an hour. Because, right. I mean, like I haven't right. watched the original Twilight Zone in years. And yeah. they've got them all streaming now on Amazon, which is great. And they're all in like this pristine Blu-ray format, and it just the quality of the video is sharp. The, oh, the... Uh, they did they did what everybody should do who cares about preserving uh, vintage film, which is they did their first pass uh, a two K scan and restoration when they made the DVDs, and they were beautiful, mm -hmm. they were gorgeous. And then Blu-ray came along, and they're like, "Well, we could take those two K scans." No, 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 no. 
let's go back and do a 4K scan, correct and find the details that we might have even missed the first time around, and we do it again. I tell you what, and it that, looks incredible. It does. That, that is the care and the love that should be shown to shows like that. Um, and, and actually, Twilight Zone, I, I think, is a favorite show of mine, maybe above Star Trek. Now, doesn't mean that I am less of a Star Trek fan. But <laughs> no, that's I, the cool I, I thing. Just, we can all be fans of whatever you know, the hell. And then just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no cap to it. There's no... No. You no. have to be Star Trek. You have to be Star Wars. You have to be... Right. I can love everything, you know? Right, right. There's, there's, right. there's enough brain space that allows you to store all this useless information... Go for there it. you go. Go for there it. There you go. And and I sort of I, I'll check myself. I was like, well, wait a minute. Why were you super into that thing six months ago that you haven't looked at since then? Go back and figure that out. <laughs> you know <laughs> what what happened to your fandom there? Go you know. Go, and that's that another that's look. always fun though too because you get to sit there and yeah. rediscover as you go. Uh, for instance, right. I collect uh, old video game systems and video games. And oh, nice. so I've got something like 80 different handhelds and consoles wow. and, and hundreds and hundreds of games that go between them all. And mm. so every now and again, I'll get stuck on like, I'll go back to the old NES and I'll pick up some video games for that and deep dive into that. Or I'll pick up the Commodore 64 and then start messing around with that. And it's really fun to just reignite that, that passion every now and again. And it doesn't have yeah. to be anything that just is in front of you all the time, every day, like Star Trek is for you. or, uh, But it's something that you can just pick up and it's never going to go away. Right. It's always right. going to be there with its arms out, welcoming you back to it. So, yeah, that's the, that's the cool thing about fandom is it just there's just ne as a never ending uh, supply of just nerd fascination with things that we're <laughs> right. into and one of the things that and, and when you were talking about uh uh star trek and how you don't even remember how you get in, came into it or where you were when it came into your life that yeah. it reminded me of when i was i want to say 13 or 14 i had already been into star trek again like you i don't remember where exactly it came in mm -hmm. but i remember trudging I was like six or seven miles from my house because no one had give me a ride. So I walked uh, the miles down to the local mall. And what I was looking for were these big giant tomes. They're like super thick, like three inches thick each. And what they contained was the screenplays for each of the episodes. Oh. There were three books. Oh, yeah. And then screenplays for each season. Yeah. And so, like, a lot of the original series episodes, I don't even think I watched initially. I think I read them because at that point yeah. in my life, I was devouring books. And those books, Star Trek books and novelizations and next-gen books and novelizations, these were the things that just I'd go to the library and pick up a fat stack of books and just sit and devour. Yeah, yeah. Which is how I got into Star Wars uh Extended universe, which again, as we explained, got ripped away and <laughs> had to start all over. But uh, that's the cool thing about Trek is I don't think Trek's ever really gone and said, well, this isn't canon. They've never said it was canon. So it's just kind of background yeah, stories. I mean, and 
Yeah, with, with the the books, I mean, Gene's office, whether or not it was Gene himself, Gene's office famously said, if it's on screen, it's canon. Mm-hmm. If it's in a book, it's not. You know, anything that is not on screen, it's not. Now, the problem with that is that there is a hell of a lot of Star Trek on screen, and it is impossible for any of that to be internally consistent at all times for every audience. <laughs> right. um, it, Star Trek is consistently inconsistent. Um, and you would go mad trying to stitch it all together. But um, yeah, they, they didn't have that trouble with the books. Although that said, and I don't follow the books that that strongly, uh, the ones that I have read, I really appreciate that you've got the time and the space to take a deeper dive with a character mm-hmm. or to fill in some of this in-between time. Um, I really like what I've read that takes place between the original series and the motion picture. I think that that's a nice time that is sort of ripe with opportunity. And uh, the, the few pieces that I've read that really explore that, I think are wonderful. Yeah. I've read a bunch of those too. And in fact, lately, uh, well, not lately, it's been a few years, but uh the current continuity that I was getting into was the story that takes place after Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. again, I've, I've expressed this in multiple interviews, and I talked about Deep Space Nine as, as my absolute favorite Trek, uh, and we yeah. can get into the reasons behind that later, but um, the ending uh, was very sudden and very kind of shocking, and there were a lot of loose ends. And so to have these books that explore what happens with, you know, when Garrick has to go back to Cardassia Prime or when, you know, Odo is gone and Kira has to go on without him and uh, how uh, Jake and and Cassidy go on without Ben. And I mean, and it's 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 really intriguing to me, this continuation that they did. And I know a lot of it's not canon i know most of it's not canon but um they it doesn't matter they took up they took a lot of really cool turns with that like uh, with nog and with uh ensign Mm roe actually came back and they did some work with her and it was just fun it's just a lot of fun yeah they really lean heavily into that uh, bashir as a spy thing which is kind of fun but uh well we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we will have more with mr john champion If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one convenient place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, we're back with John Champion of Mission Log fame. Now, John, uh, one of the things that I've really been uh, trying to do a large study on is the state of the world that we are in right now is in a kind of a state of upheaval. Uh, and, and a large reason for that upheaval is um, the fact that there are certain people in our culture that are uh, treated as inferior or 
uh, treated as second-class citizens, and and there's a real institutionalized bit of racism and a bit of uh, really hard to swallow uh, issues with. I'm trying to figure out how to say it without sounding like a dick. Uh, we we have a large problem in this country of uh, racist heritage that hasn't always gone away. Yeah. And one of the things that drove me to Star Trek back in the day, one of the things that I really admired about Star Trek was this theory, this idea of inclusion of people who, no matter you know what their skin color was or where they were born or you know how they were born or their gender or their identity and there just seemed to be this mandate from uh, Gene at the beginning of Star Trek to be this inclusive kind of idealistic society uh, that he wanted and it's interesting for me to see how it's kind of formed over the years since the early 60s or mid 60s when it started uh, up to well I mean there's been good and there's been bad I guess mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to say bad as in they were outright trying to be repressive but a bad as in areas to improve does that make sense Miss, missteps. missteps yes shall we say yeah yeah, I, I mean, look, well, uh, first of all, I, I think the the picture you're trying to paint here is even bigger than in the United States are, are historically embedded institutionalized racism. We're talking about the, the sort of the human impulse to create in-group, out-group. We're talking about this human impulse for the powerful to try to maintain power and the powerless to want to grasp power mm -hmm. to to turn those tables that that is the source of all conflict in the real world and all dramatic conflict is what is the exchange and balance of power um and unfortunately we keep seeing these cyclical things throughout history we've been very focused on the 20th century and saying like wow and you know leading up and very powerfully in 1968, 69, riots, anger, people taking to the street, saying this has got to stop. And right in the wake of uh, both of the both forms of the Civil Rights Act, um, going back to 64 and then into 68. So we're we're seeing something that honestly shouldn't be a surprise. You know, we're 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 seeing. We're seeing the, the world and people in the world do what it, it should be fully expected. Uh, you can only push people so far right. until there is a breaking point in saying this is unacceptable. And I, I think very fortunately we live in a world where through social media, through mass media as well, we see and we hear those stories in very graphic detail in your face mm. say that this is what this is about it's about these people who are going through this and who who are we if we're the ones who can do anything about it so the, the, this is all powerful stuff that that again happens over time 
And I think what you're getting at is then how does pop culture, how does entertainment media take and, and digest this and hopefully lead the way a little bit? Right, because um, they've looked at Star Trek over the course of all the years that Star Trek's been a thing. Uh, one of the things everyone keeps talking about is this uh, technological advances and things that they've designed based off of Trek technology, uh, whether mm -hmm. it be the flip phone or the Bluetooth yeah. uh, communications, or they've even yeah. made a science tricorder now. That Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, and, and iPods. I mean, uh, listening to MP3 digital music, that's because an engineer at Apple saw data in an episode of Next Gen tell his computer, play this, play this, play this, play. And because it's data, he's listening to all four tracks of music at the same time. Right. And, a, and a, a, an engineer at Apple said, like, oh, yeah, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to tell my computer or a device to just call up music that I want to hear right now. And we all now walk around with digital devices <laughs> that play music all the time. You know? Sometimes several of them at once. But, yes, but And yes. I think that's uh, what I'm saying is that uh, in as much as Star Trek has led the way technologically uh, uh, from an engineering standpoint, I think it's also, yeah. uh, by and large always kind of at least tried to take the field as an innovator in uh, social justice and social uh, growth and change. I, I think so, too. Now, the, the real trick here is that I, I don't want to either overplay or underplay Star Trek's role in that. Right. Um, I, I think there are moments in Star Trek's history that we can point to and say, oh, yeah, there's where they really got it right. There's the show that had the message in it. And there are people who are affected by that message. Now, and we'll talk about some of those examples. I think where we run the risk of overplaying it is if we say, okay, here, here was a show that was designed in 1964 to be a mouthpiece about social justice. Right. And I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I, I think Gene cared very much about the world around him. You can tell because he was writing uh, shows like The Lieutenant or producing shows like The Lieutenant where they dealt with some of these same issues like race relations and, and justice, et cetera. So these are all things that are in the culture and in the mass media in the mid-60s. TV is going to reflect that. Right. There's no question about it. And in this much bigger playing field of science fiction, there's a lot more freedom to deal with these topics, to deal with these ideas than you would by doing a realistic contemporary drama of that time. Mm -hmm. So here's a network telling Gene, like, eh, look, the lieutenant, you can't go too far here in doing the shows that are condemning racism within a military yeah. institution. But... You flip-flop that over to Star Trek and you go, oh, okay, now we can talk about race, but do it in this metaphorical way that's set far off in the future. So ideally, it doesn't come across that we're preaching to the audience. It doesn't drive them away. It at least entertains them and allows them to, to mull over an idea that otherwise they may not have paid attention to at all. So 
you know, obviously one of Star Trek's greatest examples of that is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, where um, Loki and Beale from the planet Charon or Charon or however you want to pronounce <laughs> it, up to you, um, half black on one side, half white on the other side of their face, and the other one is flip-flop. You know, one is black on the left, the other is black on the right, and the opposite side is white. And and it's just literally in your face right there mm -hmm. half black half white and they are hate they, they are filled with hate they are ready to kill each other because of their physical differences and here's kirk spock and everybody else on the enterprise is saying yeah we don't get it you're the same <laughs> you are exactly the same and yet you will kill each other to the point of extinction for this one minor because yeah, yeah, because you can't stand the physical differences between the two of you. Um, th that show, that that episode is easy to parody. It's easy to dismiss as being heavy-handed and obvious. But that show also got people to think. And... It probably isn't an episode that in 1968, I think, when that one premiered, it isn't a show that when it came out, I think, would turn a dedicated, you know, Bull Connor following George Wallace <laughs> aggrandizing uh, racist to go, oh, hey, I was wrong. No, but what it did, and, and we heard from these people in particular, we heard from a woman who was a teenager at the time saying I grew up in a small town I grew up among people who were racist here was a show that exposed the the idiocy of that racism and at least just showed me that there was a different way to look at this so it reached her it it, it changed her and in an important way probably reached her where otherwise she was in this bubble right where you know family friends her daily interactions community probably all white probably all the same socioeconomic class probably you know a lot of the same 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 every day um but it it made her stop and think and and thank goodness a show like that was able to reach out you know a, a message like that when star trek dips into advocacy where it reaches through the TV and says, this thing that you believe is really stupid. <laughs> you know? You can only get away with that for so long. You can only do that every now and then. Right. And they have a really long history of trying to uh, point the finger without exactly pointing the finger, as you said. Being an advocate without rubbing your face into it. And in fact, I, I read several different accounts where uh, basically, the TV producers were basically telling Gene Roddenberry, "Look, you can say it, but don't be too don't 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 say it, you know, because if you yeah. say it, yeah. it's going to piss off all of our sponsors. It's going to yeah. it's going to cause a ruckus, and we're going to get yanked off the air. We're doing everything we can to stay on the air. Yeah. And in fact, so oh, go ahead. Well, well, no, that that that's exactly." It, where we have to be careful about what really happened, what didn't happen, what is what is Gene saying about his journey by the time Star Trek is over and he's on the college lecture circuit in the 70s versus 
the day-to-day of producing the show Mm -hmm. in 1966 to, to 1969. I think there is, other than Trek doing these pieces of advocacy, like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, there is also the implied side of civil rights and justice that Star Trek is advocating for. The fact that you have a bridge that is multicultural. The fact that those characters all have a role to play and are are not equal by rank, but are equal by ability. This says a lot. Now, sure, the lead characters are white men. Spock's a Vulcan. Okay, he's half <laughs> Vulcan, whatever. But... Um, but everybody there has a role to play. They all are capable. They all have ability. And there is something implicit about that message that's great. That You don't have to beat the audience over the head. You just say, this is the way it is. A couple hundred years from now, that, that's just, why, why would we look at any of these other characters as being any different at all? That's what and, I really loved about, and in fact, even going in so far as to Next Generation, um, and we talk about your, your chief of security is this tough as nails uh, woman named Tasha Yar. Uh, you've got, mm-hmm. you know, everybody has a place. It's exactly like you're saying. It's not like anyone's there for tokenism, which is really impressive. And, and when I did a lot of talking to uh, my friend circle about uh, wanting to do this episode, that was one of the key things that I kept being reminded of is with Star Trek, it never really felt like tokenism. It never felt like yeah. they brought in yeah. uh, 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 a, a gay character just to have a gay character. They didn't bring in a, a black character just to have a black character. They brought in these people who were these people, who were the perfect embodiment for these people. And, yeah. and it just so well, happened they, they to be, job. you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, they did a great job about that with uh, Jordy LaForge. The least interesting thing about him is that he's black. The most interesting thing about him is that he has this visor, uh, which uh, allows him to overcome a disability. And he is a brilliant physicist, a brilliant engineer, who's good at his job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's really, uh, I mean, that, that'll take me off on a whole other tangent about <laughs> Star Trek and Star Wars and uh, Star Trek's missteps along the way. But, you know, the the great thing about Star Trek is that the characters aren't magic. They're not there because of some uh, prophecy or their family heritage or anything. like. That. No, they're, they're there because they're damn good at what they do. And even when they make mistakes they can own up to those mistakes and do a better job the next time. Exactly. You know, that, that's what makes it all approachable and understandable and relatable as human. One of the examples that I came across with, uh, with respect to Nichelle Nichols, uh, back mm-hmm. in right, right around the mid season three time, uh, she was wanting to, to leave because oh mid-season two was it mid-season? Oh, excuse me season two yeah yeah, yeah i knew yeah. you'd catch me on that too uh <laughs> she'd considered quitting star trek to pursue her dreams of preying on broadway uh yeah but she was talked back into staying and she was talked back into staying by none other than dr martin luther king jr uh which and according to a quote from nichelle she says uh dr king approached me and said something along the lines of nichelle 
Whether you like it or not, you have become a symbol. If you leave, they can replace you with a blonde-haired white girl, and it will be like you were never there. What you've accomplished for all of us will only be real if you stay. And that's amazing. Yeah. That's and powerful because that representation was so important uh, because it was so lacking in any other type of pop culture, I feel, uh, to that right. degree. Well, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, what we're saying is the sort of the the implicit message is these people are equal, and and we don't need to stop and dwell on that. We don't need to hit you over the head with it. They're just there, doing their jobs, and that that actually does speak volumes. You know, um, you do have the other episodes that decide to tell you a message, and <laughs> that's fine too. That's good, but. We're, we're starting with a baseline of saying we're all equal. Mm -hmm. Now let's go from here. Agreed. And, and that was one of the fun things. I mean, I've actually met Nichelle Nichols. She's seriously one of the warmest people I've ever met. She was amazing. And she she glows. She absolutely, absolutely. glows. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then I met uh, yeah. I met George as well at one point, and uh, ah, nice. <laughs> Yeah. My bass player almost stepped on him, but that's a different story. <clears throat> oh no! Yikes! He's a really cool guy too. I, um, yeah. But by and large, the thing that, like you say, the thing with Star Trek is that it's not necessarily the heavy-handed stories that bash you over the head with advocacy or this, that, or the other thing. It's just the fact that they're all there, and mm -hmm. that that even brings us up through. Uh, up through now and what they're doing with Discovery is we've got our first openly gay couple in a Star Trek series. And what I tell people about that is the cool thing is that they didn't push it forward like as tokenism. They didn't say, here's our gays. You know, they pushed them forward as right. this is our doctor. This is our science officer. They happen to be married. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, and and, and yeah, I, they just handle it so well. Yeah, I, I think they did too. And it, this is one of those things that that actually it, it is a correction of what could have been a very different course for next gen. Um, in 1986, uh, at a convention, Gene was wait a minute, what, was Gene asked specifically, or maybe one of the writers, might have been David Gerald, was asked. No, I think Gene It was, was Gene specifically, specifically asked, yeah. and David Gerald uh, had David addressed Gerald it in the communicated media. Communicated yeah. it, yes. Yeah. Um, when will we have a gay character? And, and Gene was all for this. Like, yeah, it's, it's about time. Why wouldn't we? And this being 1986, and trying to make a commercial TV show that, you've got to sell ads for in syndication all over the country they they didn't take the chance where they could now the argument on the inside was okay let's say we have a gay character how do we express that how how do we treat that because either nobody's sexuality is anybody's business so that would never be revealed anyway. It doesn't matter. So we wouldn't know if somebody is gay. Or we are singling somebody out, and now we run the risk of having a token character, and, and hopefully not, but a, a, a stereotype character. 
and and this is another path that we don't want to go down. Right. Now, both of those answers are a little bit short-sighted. Obviously, there is a sexual element to Star Trek, and they tried in Next Gen to push that boundary as well. Certainly in DS9, they tried to push that boundary, and, and they, they found their way pushing those envelopes. But, yeah, it took us until 2017, 51 years after Star Trek premiered, to get a character who's, who's just gay because that's just who they are. Now, there's one exception to that, which was in Star Trek Beyond. Right. In John 2016. Cho. John Cho. Yeah, as Sulu. I still, to this day, I don't understand the fan outrage about that. And it wasn't everybody, to be sure. But there was a very vocal minority. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was I thought it was a really smart way to do that because it, it, it actually covers the problem that we had going back to 1986, of how do we do this as a character on Next Gen? Well, the answer is, you don't. We just say, hey, look, here's this character that we know all these things about. Hikaru Sulu is, uh, he, he is a swordsman. He is a navigator. He is, uh, he looks great with a shirt off. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he can do all these great things. And by the way, this is also, here's a, a little, just a few frames glimpse at his family life. Cool. Doesn't change anything that I learned about Sulu up until that point. Right. Yeah. That, and, and that's, again, I, I, I think I read some of the same things that you're talking about, too, as uh, uh, David Gerald's uh, kind of advocacy for it and, and, and the outrage at Star Trek Beyond for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, same thing now with uh, Seven of Nine in the Picard series. I read that article so too. Yeah, the reveal that she is bisexual or gay, whatever. And it's like none of that changes what I think about that character. My fandom of that character is not dependent on my perception of their sexuality from before right. or my assumption about their sexuality. Like it absolutely does not matter. It's simply one more layer, one more reveal about who they are. And I think a lot of people get real wrapped up in their own ideas of people and how they see yeah. them and they, they can't let that go. And, and, and unfortunately that fragile little eggshell ego of theirs can't handle the fact that, yeah, maybe Seven was, was by all this time, and it yeah. never reared its head because it didn't flipping matter. Right. It wasn't exactly. important to the character to just be flouncing around and, and flaunting it when she's got a job to do. She was there to do a job. Yeah. You know? And, and there was something that I, I think they didn't, because they couldn't explore it to the lengths that they wanted to, and that is sort of the evolved perception of sexuality by the time we get to the 24th century. Look, I, I, I think that um, Deanna Troy and Will Riker, I mean, they, they just, they had to be open. Come on. It's like from one episode, they're making out the next episode, they're making out somebody else <laughs> and they don't seem to care. So, you know, I think again, the implication there is that they're, they're just going to do whatever they want to do and it doesn't matter to you or anybody else right well we're going to take a real quick break we'll come right back and uh, we'll keep this going because I'm, I'm loving where this is going voting isn't just going to the polls on election day 
Options like early voting, mail-in voting, and ballot drop boxes are available to more voters and are growing in popularity. How to Vote, a tool created by Democracy Works, breaks down the options your state offers for casting a ballot, empowering you to decide when and where to vote. Democracy works best when we all vote, but misinformation and confusion about election procedures have resulted in low voter turnout. How to Vote is easy to use and helps folks from all over the country overcome many of the process barriers to voting. Democracy Works is committed to helping you vote no matter what. You can sign up for election reminders, see what's on your ballot, get step-by-step -step assistance requesting your mailing ballot, explore your options for returning your voted mail ballot, check your voter registration status, find your polling site, and make sure you have the appropriate ID. Decide when and where you'll vote this year at howto.vote. All right, welcome back. Now, we were discussing um, the addition of characters and, and character traits in Star Trek that uh, would allow for this inclusion, the, the bisexuality of, of Seven of Nine, or one of my favorite examples uh, recently was when I had watched, uh, there was a documentary done about Deep Space Nine uh, called What You Leave Behind by Iris Stephen Bear. And he talks about this uh, metaphorical eighth season that they never got to shoot. <laughs> and, and they get the writer's room together and they start talking about this. Well, what would we do with this eighth season? How do we handle it? First of all, spoiler alert, they kill Nog and I hate that and I hate them and I want them all to take yeah. it back deeply. Yeah. But yeah. anyways... That's neither here nor there. One of the cool interview pieces that they did is they talked to Andrew Robinson about uh, his character Garrick. And one of the things that they revealed in this interview was that Garrick was not always 100% straight. Garrick was very um, interested in young Dr. Bashir. And it wasn't... Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't platonic interest. It was, and then they asked Andrew about that, and he said, "Yeah, I played it that way on purpose. I wanted to see what they would do with it." And they so this this cat and mouse that we see with uh, Garrick and Bashir throughout the entire run of their friendship, which I want to say started in was it season two or season three? I think two. Okay, because it was pretty early That's on. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so this cat and mouse that we get between the two of them was just super intense flirting at least on the on, on the part of of, of Elam Garrick and, and I thought that that was really an an interesting take for a show that hadn't really at that point up to that point uh, taken a stance on uh, gay straight by characters or anything like that well I mean the, I, I think we have to give the credit to fantastic insight and a fantastic choice by the actor first and foremost absolutely um it, none of that is in the script but then I, I remember the first time we met garrick when we were discussing it on mission log the word that i wrote down was seductive and, <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily sexual but it was just the way they were having this conversation garrick is seducing bashir with the conversation, with, with, with the, the fun of their interaction. And it, it was in, 
just this great thing to hear uh, Andy Robinson say, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm playing him as bi. He, he's got an interest in Garrick, or he's got an interest in Bashir. And uh, we, we recently, in uh, Mission Log's coverage, saw his interest in Tora Zial, Gul Dukat's daughter. So I like the idea. Again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about what is... First of all, it's an alien, but second of all, it's the 24th century. What is our evolved view of sexuality? Is it just that uh, people who are bisexual are more visible and and accepted? Uh, These are all, these aren't things that are baked into the character because a producer didn't necessarily sit down with a writer and say, okay, we have to tick off all these boxes. We have to have this kind of representation here, this kind here, this kind. But, but there are these little subtle pushes with what an actor can do, maybe what a director will say, ooh, yeah, do more of that. What if you played it like this? <laughs> what if your reaction to Bashir is like this? that really then give that character so much more life um, and allows us as the audience to maybe mull that over, ask a question or two about where they're actually coming from. Right, exactly. And one of the things that I did is, like I said, I talked to a bunch of people in my my friends group and my circle and, and their circles and tried to get their take on uh, representation in Star Trek and, and where it's come from and where it's evolved into. And uh, my friend Chris, uh, she had mentioned that, uh, whatever, I'm going to read this here so I might add it a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was never a feeling of tokenism or black exploitation. They presented strong values and healthy family structures, rich history and passion, and also courage and integrity like every other character of the franchise, including Quark. And in this case, she's talking about uh, Ben Sisko, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um with the exception of the obvious female objectification of Ahura in the original 60s, they also objectified men as well, so there's that. Uh, the portrayal mm. of black characters was always, in my eyes, very progressive, uplifting, and inspiring. The way Star Trek presented people of color always felt not about race, but the integrity of the characters and the story that they had to tell, which is, I think, kind of what we covered as well. Uh, what I've really jumped into and what I really liked about... I, I'm, I'm unabashedly a Deep Space Nine fan. It has been my mm-hmm. favorite Star Trek since I witnessed it. Uh, from episode one. I remember it airing. I remember being there for it and just being there every subsequent week when it was on. Oh, wow. And, wow. and the reason that I gravitated towards it was strong character portrayals. This cool mm-hmm. Wild West feeling frontier... Uh, which don't tell Kira I said that. Uh, she, she doesn't like it when people refer to. <laughs> no, no, she does not like that at all. The frontier, yeah. uh, but it, it very, it very much felt like this uh, western in space, which is I kind of think what it was. Gene Roddenberry's original intention: wagon train to the stars. You know, he, he had a very western right. motif. But the right. fact of the matter is, is that Deep Space Nine gave us. Uh, not our first uh, strong black character in the Star Trek universe, but definitely our most front and center example with Benjamin Sisko. And what they didn't do is follow any of the typical tropes at the time. Uh, It didn't matter that he was black. It mattered that he was commanding. Uh, It didn't matter that 
you know, here's this single black man raising his kid on his own because he's just a man raising his son, raising his son to be a strong person, being a strong person for his son. We get to see him take some of these steps backwards and be uh, where he's like, you know, I need to do what's best for for me. I can't be in this situation, especially in the emissary. Uh, We see him struggle with even taking the position because he's fighting with so much anger and so much uh, repressed emotion. But he sees that he's right for the job. He sees that it is the place that he needs to be and that he needs to be with his son and that he needs to raise this family. We're never presented with it being, like I said, tokenism. We're never presented with it being just... He's doing this because he's black. No, we're given a strong character with strong roots, strong motivation, strong drive. uh, And he just happens to be black. Yeah. Well, I think that gets to, you know, again, the, the purpose of the show is to tell great entertaining stories that an audience will want to tune into week after week with, with characters that they can either identify with or aspire to be like, be uh, uh, influenced by. Um, so you start there and you go, here's a character with this background in Starfleet. He goes through this. He ends up out here in this unique situation. Um, he's got a kid. He, he has all these attributes that you just laid out. And then you go... Now, what if we broke the mold here a little bit and we cast a strong black actor in this role because we haven't done that before. Nobody's doing that. It, 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 we're, all we're doing is we're taking all these great things that we've written and we're pushing it that one more step further that, that others didn't have the guts to do on TV. And you pick and choose those battles, you know. Um, Gene had, uh, you go back to TOS, and in the script, in the cage, it's Jose Tyler, who is the navigator, right? Well, who do we have in that seat? Well, we got a blonde-haired white guy, (laughs) you know? I hope that now that we're getting a Pike series uh, with Anson Mount... That Jose Tyler is there. That'd be great, wouldn't it? he is the Latino character. Yes, he is a Latino character that he should be. Um, uh, Next Gen, uh, Tasha Yar, and and this is no knock against Denise because it's a great character, and and I wish we'd gotten more out of her as Tasha, uh, but that was Macha Hernandez. That that would have been a female Latina character on the bridge. Interesting. So we, we keep... Yeah, it's like it, we, we have all these great ideas, but then for whatever reason gets filtered through where you've got casting personnel, you've got producers, you've got writers, you've got studio executives, you have all these hands in that pie, and you just sort of end up with what you end up with. Um, and, and some of those are brilliant and inspired and groundbreaking choices, and some of them are just kind of obvious, you know? And that's it. It doesn't take away at all from the actors. The, the actors are doing a great job with, uh, with with what they're given. That is not to take away from them at all. But it, it's to say that Star Trek from the beginning has said, what if we take these conventions and kind of turn them on their head a little bit? Well, we'll turn it as far as we can. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. 
sometimes we can push the envelope, sometimes we can't. What's most important is that while we, we live to see another day, we live to make another episode of the show the next week. Right. And they're doing something right because they've got 700 plus now hours in the can and many, many more to come. Yeah, and one of those, uh, I don't want to call it a misstep, but it, it definitely was a missed opportunity. They did play around with a lot of uh, the trill physiology uh, during Deep Space Nine, and specifically uh, with the fact that uh, Jedzia had had previous hosts, or Dax, excuse me, not Jedzia, mm-hmm. Jedzia is a host. <laughs> but Jedzia is singular, yeah. Dax had had different hosts across the eight or nine lifetimes, that had been male, female, gay, straight, along the entire spectrum. So by the time we get to Jadzia, they're able to play around with that a little bit. Uh, not as much. I mean, there was uh, the same-sex kiss between her and her previous host in uh, one of the episodes. And uh, yeah. I know they, they talked about it in uh, that documentary again. I can't stress yeah. enough how important it is for people to go out and watch that. If you're a fan of Deep Space Nine, you're going to get something from it. But uh, <laughs> uh, they talk about that, how they tried to but just couldn't get over that hump as far yeah. as, as the representation gear goes. And I think that's probably what led to uh, a wider band now that we're into... And, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong in this particular case, but... Now that we've got Star Trek appearing on a pay service, CBS All mm-hmm. Access, mm-hmm. proud sponsor, proud member, I love them. I, I've been using <laughs> them since day one. But yeah. uh, now that we're beyond this paywall that allows them to be a bit more picky and choosy with what they do, um, I think we're going to see a lot more characterizations that are all encompassing that are all yeah representative of everybody i i hope that we get that because they are good character choices not again because they feel like they have to tick off the box and say oh well we have to have this we have to have it it's like no no, start with the character and then flesh out the character but flesh out their purpose in the story um but you know what you're pointing out has sort of always been star trek's uh, ability to break some ground. Go back to the 60s, and yeah, it's network TV, but it's science fiction, so we can tell some different types of stories. Go to the 80s, it's syndication, so you can do a little more than you would do if it was just on, you know, NBC at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Syndication gives them a certain amount of freedom to tell the stories that they want to tell. Mm-hmm. Can't go overboard, can't just do anything you want, it's not pay cable. Okay, but now we're in a world where the media landscape is so fractured um, and Star Trek, along with everything else, kind of becomes this boutique operation <laughs> where you're, you're going after a smaller audience or you're going after rather a bigger slice of a smaller audience um, because there are so many choices out there. But because it's behind a paywall, because you're not uh, beholden to sponsors or somebody in some town saying, nope, I'm not going to air that on my UHF station, uh, you get to push the envelope a bit more. The downside of that, like I said, is just 
pushing the envelope for the sake of pushing the envelope, just because you can. Well, we're going to drop an F-bomb here (laughs) and one over there and one over there and one over there. I get a little tired of it. I'm not offended. I just think that it's it's sloppy if you overplay that hand. Agreed. Um, You know, uh, but so what? I, I also want Star Trek to take on new and interesting adult stories with new and interesting and more complex characters than we've ever seen before. And I think we're going to start getting that in, in you know, Stamets and and, mm-hmm. and the way they play him and, and Dr. Culber, obviously. And then also now uh, with Picard coming back for a second season, we get to do, do yeah. a little bit more of a dive into Jerry Ryan's uh, Seven of Nine. But we also get this one. Oh, I can't tell you how much I love Captain Rios. He, oh, he's so cool. We got like he's great. The thing is, yeah. we got like six different versions of him through his holograms, and it's like <laughs> we get to see all of the different characterizations for him play out. But, but yeah, we're getting more and more representation built into the series. And I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for Gene. I can't speak for Rod. I can't speak for anyone else other than myself. But I feel like this is the natural progression. For Star yeah. or Star Trek, I think that yeah. we are seeing his dream unfettered and and, yeah. and able to take the form that it's going to take. Damn the consequences, because the consequences are gone now. They right. the fan base is built in. There's no shake in it. Yeah, yeah. You can piss off those guys that say, "Oh, well, Jerry Ryan was never. She was a bisexual in Voyager." It's like you don't know that. Yeah. Where, where, where was it where was it written that she had to be straight and had to fulfill your specific vision of her right. i don't remember reading that anywhere right yeah. exactly that and, and i think yeah. as we've gone forward with star trek and as we continue to go forward with star trek we got a lot of a exciting new star trek on the horizon as well we're going to start to see more and more this dream of a truly unified world universe Mm. not even a world Mm -hmm. a universe and i think Mm -hmm. one of the cool things is is even with star trek going back into the day we are able to attack things like racism and and things like that with uh the other species that they bring into play on the show we're able to tackle issues of race and how they deal with the ferengi or the cardassian bajoran occupation things like that we're able to attack it without Saying this is this is a black issue, this is a white issue, this is a German issue, this is a we don't have to do yeah. that, and we could still handle these deep and heavy topics with the glasses of this being Star Trek. Yeah, and I think we're going to get a lot more of that. I think we're going to get a lot more inclusion and representation, and 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 I think, like I said, I I can't speak for Gene's dream, but that seems to be where it was going. Well, you know, Gene himself, I can't remember if it was in the Yellow Sweater interview or not, uh, which is just a famous and and often used interview that he did where he's wearing a yellow sweater. Uh, But one of the interviews he did later in his life, he was talking about the legacy and saying, you know, what I hope happens is that some other young, talented producer, writer comes along and takes Star Trek and does their own version of it and does it better than I ever did it. 
you know that that's what he wanted and there's a great scene in rod's documentary track nation where he shows that clip to jj abrams who had never seen it before and he was just sort of bowled over like yeah th this isn't star trek doesn't belong to one person star trek doesn't belong to one particular type of fan um star trek is this tool that people use to tell stories and it, now it, it always amazes me when i come across star trek fans who don't get that who who don't understand that star trek is reflective of the time that it's in mm -hmm. that is concerned about the issues that are the issues of the time that it's produced um it was very apparent in the 60s. I think now, I mean, look, I was, I'm mortified that earlier today I went to the Roddenberry Facebook page and we had posted a picture of Patrick Stewart wearing a Pride t-shirt, right? Sure, 90% of the comments are very positive, but that 10% scares the crap out of me. That 10% of comments who don't seem to understand that part of Star Trek's story, part of what makes Star Trek Star Trek is this message of not just inclusion and, and diversity, but an acceptance and an embrace and a curiosity about people who aren't like you. You know, um, it, it, it absolutely shocks me and i don't understand what those people are getting out of these stories <laughs> that the other 90 percent are getting out of these stories. i just had this conversation with someone last week uh about the whole mm -hmm. uh, star wars and rebellion and they're, they're <laughs> poo-pooing protesting and things like that and it's like yeah how do you call yourself a fan of star wars if you're not into a rebellion if you don't get yeah. the idea of rebellion <laughs> right. or like the people who right. are uh, pissed off at Tom Morello and Rage Against the Machine. Have you have oh, you seen that those? Me up. Oh my God! Yes, they're, they're so funny. Jumping on yeah. on Twitter saying, "Oh well, I didn't realize you were political in your music, and and and, and I'm not going to listen to you if you're going to keep taking this political stand." It's like, what the hell machine did you think they were raging against, dude? Yes, it's yes, it's I love funny it. to me to see these people who just so blatantly miss the point. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that goes, in fact, with Star Trek as well, is the fact that yeah. you can't be a bigot and say you get yeah. it because you're yeah. obviously missing a key component, you know. And, and look, Star Trek wasn't the first and it's certainly not always the best at addressing these issues. What Star Trek has going for it is that you have the metaphor of science fiction to be able to stretch out a little bit and say, okay, we're, we're just going to defuse the situation a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it, instead of saying this is Vietnam, we're going to a private little war and we're talking about an arms race between the Klingons and the Federation. You know, uh, but to anybody who's watching it with any sense of, at the time, current uh, geopolitics or now a look at history and certainly history has a way of repeating itself huh. should be able to look at it and go okay wait a minute let let me wrap my head around just for a minute what are the principles of the story 
as opposed to just digging into what my predetermined position is, either because of political party or religious belief or whatever it is that I'm bringing to it ahead of time, you know? I agree. My, my hat is off to Star Trek's writers and producers historically who have been able to do this. And absolutely, I know that it, it is a collaborative effort where you always run up against brick walls. You always run up against obstacles that might prevent you from telling the story or having the character you want to have. But at the end of the day, I'd say Star Trek's track record is pretty good. There are missteps, yes. <laughs> but but at least there's movement in the yeah. right direction. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit and talk with me about this. It's definitely something I can tell you've got a a deep and abiding passion for, which is everything we that matters to this program. So... Um, well, I appreciate that greatly. Thank you. Uh, well, on behalf of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank you all for listening in to another episode of Nerdy Ramblings and Rantings. But uh, uh, stick around next week. We'll have another new episode. And uh, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting the program. You can find us again at anchor.fm forward slash Feel Your Fandom. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. Or you can find us on Facebook if you want to interact with us there. Facebook.com forward slash Feel Your Fandom. Thank you for uh, joining us for another episode. And like I always like to remind everybody at the end of all my episodes, everything is fandom and fandom is everything. Take care. Take care.